As the first month of 2024 draws to a close, we're going to take a look at the changes we made to our investment portfolios in January. And we actually bought and sold more stocks than usual. Find out why on this episode of the Stocks and Savings Podcast. Hi, we're Andrea and Jamie, two millennial investors and chartered accountants that are here to help you become more confident about the world of investing and finance. We want to give a disclaimer that we are not financial advisors. Nothing in this podcast should be treated as financial advice. This is for educational purposes only. When investing, your capital is at risk and the value of your investments may rise and fall. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Trading212, for helping us to bring you this podcast. Trading212 is an investing platform which aims to democratize investing and is also the platform that we've used since we started. But more on that a little bit later on. If we thought 2024 was going to be more relaxing, January has certainly proved us wrong. It's been a pretty busy month for us, from dog-sitting a six-month-old Labrador puppy, to going to Romania for a week, to relaunching this podcast, our newsletter, and our investing course. So it's been a lot. Yeah, exactly. And you think we would have made it easier for ourselves by having a more hands-off approach with our portfolios this month. Well, apparently we just don't like resting because after reviewing everything we've bought and sold in January, it feels like one of the most active months in our portfolios. We should remind everyone that we are long-term investors and we do plan to hold most of our investments for years, if not decades. However, we do occasionally trim some of our individual stocks, meaning we might sell 10% or so of our investment if the stock is looking a bit expensive or if we have some concerns about the investment for one reason or another. And we did a bit of trimming in January. In fact, I sold around £550 worth of investments and Jamie sold around £450 worth of investments. And we'll get into the details of why that happened later on. However, we'll begin by talking about the stocks that we decided to buy this month. And as usual, we'll pick one or two of them to go into a bit more detail. So this month I bought around £1,200 worth of investments. This came from the £750 that I invest every month when I get paid and the additional £450 came from the investments that I sold. And I think that's important to mention here. Whenever we talk about selling investments or trimming investments, 99% of the time, it doesn't mean that we're going to leave it as cash or take it out of our portfolio. We'll almost always be reinvesting it into something else. That's why I was able to buy £1,200 worth of investments this month. And those were... £500 that went into my global pie, £300 that went into UiPath, £100 went into Airbnb, £100 went into Alphabet, £100 went into Block, and £100 went into Axon. So we'll be talking in a bit more detail about a couple of these investments, namely UiPath and Airbnb, later on in this episode, but I want to touch on a couple of others. The first is the 500 quid that I invested into my global pie, which was easily my largest investment in January. A pie is something you can make on Trading212, and it's basically like your own little basket of investments. Both myself and Andrea have our own global pie, and it's made up of two different funds. 90% of the pie is the Vanguard FTSE All World ETF, and 10% of the pie is the iShares MSI World Small Cap ETF. And yes, after some research and Andrea pointing it out alongside a couple of other people, apparently it's MSCI, not MSI. Who would have thought, huh? Not us, apparently. However, apparently I'm too stuck in my ways, and I'm like, MSCI, that just takes far too long to say. Yeah, you're a busy person, you've got people to see, places to go. You can't just say MSCI. I appreciate you making out like I have places to go and people to see. Well, you've got place to go. (laughs) And that place is a shed. 
<laughs> and person to see, I guess. Well, I can see all my colleagues at work. Literally all of them. Anyway, now, unless this is your first time listening to our podcast, you've probably heard us talk to death about these funds, particularly the Vanguard FTSE or World ETF. It's basically a basket of over 3,000 stocks of medium and large companies from all across the globe. And the iShares MSI World Small Cap is basically the same idea, except it only invests in smaller companies. Now, my goal this year is to move from having 0% of my portfolio in funds to having around 10% by the end of 2024. And I've started the year on the right foot. I'm doing this because investing in funds can be far less time consuming than investing in individual stocks. So I'd like to have more of a balance between hands-off and hands-on investing. The other investment that I want to quickly touch on is Axon. This is a company that got famous for making tasers, but there is so, so much more to this business. In fact, in our first episode of 2024, I spoke about what a brilliant business this is and how much good it's bringing to the world by reducing the use of firearms in law enforcement and by ensuring more transparency with its body cams. And it brings all this together with software that it sells across the judicial system. Now, shares of Axon aren't exactly cheap right now. In fact, they rarely are because it's such a brilliant company. But there was a recent announcement that encouraged me to just top up a little bit more of my investment. On the 25th of January, the company announced a new generation of body cameras designed for frontline workers in retail stores and healthcare facilities. This is a brand new market that Axon is targeting, and I think it could provide yet another huge opportunity for growth, whilst still making the world a better place. A recent survey by Axon found that in the United States, a staggering 47% of retail workers have experienced violent incidents on the job, which, I mean, that, that is insane to me. I don't know what it's like in the UK, and maybe I'm just far more oblivious than I should be, but I really hope it isn't that high. Yeah, I feel like retail workers aren't paid enough to put up with this. And healthcare workers too, to be fair. Oh, and healthcare workers. Now, Axon Body Workforce, which is the name of this new line of body cameras, has been trialled by some of the largest healthcare networks and global retailers, demonstrating early success in deterrence and de-escalation. One trial saw a net 53% reduction in incidents, while another reported 47% of active incidents being effectively de-escalated after activating recordings on the camera. In short, this stuff works in reducing the violence faced by frontline workers. I know Axon is a brilliant company, and this recent announcement gave me the confidence I need to top up a little bit more to my existing investment, even though shares are a bit more expensive than I would normally be purchasing at. Similarly, I trimmed quite a few investments this month, which meant that I was able to invest £1,300. £750 came from my wages, and the remaining £550 came from investments that I sold in January. So I invested £600 into the Vanguard FTSE All World ETF, £250 into the Invesco EQQQ NASDAQ 100 ETF, £150 into my Global Pie, £150 into PayPal, and £150 into Block. Again, I'll be talking about those two individual stocks, PayPal and Block, in more detail later on, as well as one of the companies whose shares I trimmed. But I want to also touch on some of these investments. Obviously, there's my investment into the Vanguard FTSE All World ETF and the Global Pie, and those are for basically all the same reasons that Jamie outlined. But the one thing that is a bit different when it comes to my investments in funds is the fact that I also put £250 into the Invesco EQQQ NASDAQ 100 ETF. 
This is an index fund that tracks the Nasdaq 100 index, a stock market index made up of 100 mostly technology-focused companies in the United States, including tech giants such as Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Nvidia. Did I say Nvidia weirdly just now? Doesn't everyone say it weirdly? I mean, that's a weird way to start a word, an N and a V. Hmm. Now, I do already invest in quite a few technology stocks in my individual holdings, so why am I bothering to invest in a fund that does the same thing? Well, it's simply because I think that, over time, my approach to investing will take me further away from individual stocks and closer to investing in funds. So this allows me to still invest in technology companies without having to keep up with loads of results from different businesses, with the only downside being that I have less control over the specific companies that I invest in and the specific prices that I'm investing at. Yeah, exactly. You can invest in a specific price of the NASDAQ 100, but you know, unlike when you invest in an individual stock, you kind of have an idea what is baked into that price to an extent with individual stocks. But when it's 100 individual stocks all lumped together in one index, you kind of have to trust it and, and you can't really figure out why it is priced that way. And last but not least, I also plan to invest for decades, so I am happy to go for a higher risk, potentially higher reward investment in the Invesco EQQQ Nasdaq 100 ETF than just the Vanguard FTSE All World ETF. I do believe that technological innovations will continue to drive economic growth and that the United States stock market will be strong for the foreseeable future. So it makes sense for me to try and benefit from that by investing in the tech-focused Nasdaq. But let's now move on to some of the individual stocks that we invested in this month. And Jamie, I think you've got quite an interesting one to start us off with. Well, I'm glad you think it's interesting. So this company that I've decided to invest in this month is one that I've owned for actually quite a long time. But I basically paused all buying and selling activity after deciding that it needed to go on the naughty step. By which I mean there were some issues at the company and I was going to wait and see how they played out before I decided whether or not to buy any more shares or sell my existing investment. And that company is UiPath. UiPath is a leader in a technology known as robotic process automation. The company makes little software robots that are capable of emulating human actions. Basically, these are little pieces of software that can automate boring, repetitive tasks for businesses that previously were done by humans. As UiPath says, it makes software robots so people don't have to be robots. What a great mission statement. Is that their mission statement? Honestly, I don't know if they call it that, but it definitely should be. I, I see it as their mission statement. Mm. So UiPath provides businesses with the ability to use its software robots to perform a wide range of human-like business process actions, such as logging into applications, extracting information from documents, moving folders, filling in forms, updating information fields and databases, and many, many more exciting things. This allows companies to become more efficient whilst reducing the amount of repetitive, mind-numbing, robotic work their employees need to perform. This is clearly a win-win-win. It allows businesses to become more efficient, it stops people from having to carry out boring tasks, and it allows UiPath to make money. It's also exciting because robotic process automation, which is often abbreviated to RPA, is meant to be a rapidly growing industry. According to Grandview Research, the RPA market in the United States is expected to grow by a whopping 39.6% a year on average, from 2023 through to 2030. That is astounding growth. It's insane. 
and UiPath has always been a leader in the industry. So I would expect UiPath to benefit if robotic process automation really starts to take off. It also has another thing I look for, a founder who is involved in the day-to-day -day running of the business as the chief innovation officer. The founder is Daniel Dines, who, fun fact, is a Romanian entrepreneur and the richest person in Romania, with a net worth of $2.6 billion as of January this year. I appreciate the fact that you pronounce his name in a Romanian way. Well, I thought I'd put in the effort. Normally, I just call him Danny Dines. It does have a nice ring to it, except that's not his name. <laughs> Daniel Dines it is. So the reason that Danny Dines has such a high net worth is also part of the reason that I invested in UiPath. He has a lot of skin in the game. By this, I mean that he owns a lot of UiPath shares. In fact, he owns over 19% of the company, which is a lot. This means that he personally is very incentivized to deliver for shareholders and grow the share price because his personal wealth will grow significantly with it. Not that he needs any more money, to be fair. Now, $2.6 billion, that's rookie numbers. He wants to catch up with Elon Musk and, you know, he's going to be the Mark Zuckerberg of Romania. He probably already is. Okay, fine, he is. He's the richest guy in Romania, but yeah. still. So this all sounds great. So what's not to like? Why was it on the naughty step? Well, remember that high growth potential for the industry? It didn't seem to be happening. UiPath's revenue grew by 47% in 2021, which was great. And then 19% in 2022 which is, you know, still pretty good, but way below expectations. And the most worrying thing was that in the last quarter of 2022, the company only grew revenue by under 7%. This is miles away from the almost 40% growth that the industry is expected to grow at. So what was going wrong? Well, there was a small change in its business model, which did impact revenue temporarily, but the real reason was that UiPath was struggling to sell to enterprise-level customers. And that's just a fancy way of saying really, really big companies. Now, back in 2021 and 2022, founder Daniel Dines was in the CEO role. However, something became clear. He had built an amazing company with industry-leading products, but his strength was not in selling to these huge enterprise-level businesses. Enter Rob Enslin, who became co-CEO alongside Dinez in April 2022, and who is transitioning to the role of sole CEO on February the 1st, so a day after this podcast comes out. Enslin joined UiPath having previously worked as president of Google Cloud Sales, which sounded exactly like what UiPath needed, a seasoned executive who was used to working with large clients, particularly in the US. And it appears to have paid off. After a period of uncertainty, UiPath appears to have bounced back. In the company's latest quarter, its revenue grew by an impressive 24% year over year, which clearly shows that it's back and on a roll. It's always had a great product, and these results have done enough to calm the fears that I've had about this company for the past year, if not longer. And that is why I've moved it off of the naughty step and back into my main portfolio. I also think that the share price right now looks reasonable. Not cheap, but not expensive. And if the business can really start firing again and growing at 25%, 30% a year or more, then I think this will be a very happy investment. Clearly, there are still risks, especially as it has competition from giants like Microsoft. And I think it's too early to say that all of the problems are fixed. But I do believe that this business is back on track and I'm excited to see what the future holds. 
All the stocks and ETFs in this episode can be found on Trading212. The next 45 seconds are kindly sponsored by Trading212, but we started using Trading212 long before we had a partnership with them. One of the reasons why we chose Trading212 for our stocks and shares ISAs is the wide range of investments available. From index funds and ETFs, including Vanguard ETFs, to stocks like the ones mentioned in this episode, there's something to suit most investing styles. This gives us the flexibility to diversify our portfolios, a strategy which can reduce risk when investing. This is why we chose Trading212 and four years on, we still have our stocks and shares ISAs with them. And from the 9th of January, you can get 5% interest on your cash through qualifying money market funds. Just Google Trading212 interest on uninvested cash and click on the first search result to find out more about it. If you sign up to Trading212 using the referral link in the description and deposit at least the minimum amount required for Invest or ISA accounts, which at the time of recording is £1, you can get a fractional free share worth up to £100. Terms and conditions apply. As always, I invested in a mixture of individual stocks and funds, and I usually focus more on funds. However, there were two individual stocks that I decided to invest in this month, which actually share a few characteristics. The first one being that they are both in the digital payment space, and the second one being that the stock market hasn't been too kind on them for the past couple of years. These two companies are PayPal and Block, and I invested £150 into each of them. So now, let's quickly go through what PayPal and Block do before I get into why I invested in them. Starting with the name that I think most people know, PayPal. PayPal is a leading global platform that enables digital payments and simplifies the world of commerce for both businesses and customers. The company covers the entire spectrum of digital payments from online checkouts and risk management to international money transfers and buy now pay later services. I think PayPal is a household name because of its offering for consumers such as the ability to make payments for things online through your PayPal account or the ability to transfer money to friends and family. But as mentioned, PayPal is so much more, especially for small and medium-sized businesses as it can help them to access payments whilst minimizing the risk of fraud and it has tons of data that could be used to help them with marketing. Basically, PayPal does a lot of things and covers virtually the entire massive spectrum of digital payments. So it's no surprise that there is some crossover in what PayPal does and what Block does. Now, Block is an interesting business. It has quite a few side businesses that it claims all work together in one ecosystem. But in reality, there are two main parts to this business, Square and Cash App. I'll start with Square, which is what Block used to be called until it changed its name in late 2021. That still has to go down as one of the worst name changes of all time. I, I still just call the company Blob. <laughs> That's terrible. It's incredibly childish, but I, I don't care. I mean, I understand there was probably some marketing naming agency that thought they were being smart by changing the name Square to a 3D Square, which is Block, because it does more. But Block is a terrible name. Yeah, but the question is, is it worse than Facebook renaming itself as Meta? Hmm. Honestly, yes, because Facebook, I'm fairly confident they partly did it because the Facebook brand is pretty much trashed. Mm. And Instagram and WhatsApp is a bit less trashed. So why don't they be like, oh yeah, it's, uh, it's Instagram owned by Meta, not owned by Facebook. Ew, not, not that mean company. That's not us. True. It's kind of like what Google did as well, right? With Alphabet. 
Yeah, although I don't think Google is as bad. But yeah, you're right, because they wanted to incorporate YouTube and I guess Google Cloud underneath the same uh, the same company. But I struggle to think of a worse one than Block off the top of my head. Yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> but anyway, going back to Block, <laughs> they used to be called Square. So Square was co-founded by current CEO Jack Dorsey, who also founded Twitter. Fun fact. And he had a simple yet powerful idea to make it easier for businesses to accept card payments. Over the years, Square has evolved into a complete platform for small and medium-sized businesses, offering a range of tools and services to help these companies. From point-of-sale devices like tails and card readers to payroll services to online checkouts and even email marketing. So they do a lot. The other main business segment is Cash App, which is a mobile app primarily in the United States that was made to help people transfer money to each other seamlessly, which I think is a surprisingly awkward thing to do in the US. As it has grown, Cash App has started to offer much more to its users, such as being able to buy stocks and even Bitcoin, <laughs> being able to have your salary paid in and also using a Cash App debit card. Also, it continues to be the most popular app of its kind in the market. According to SimilarWeb.com, it is the most used finance app in the United States, with Chase coming in second and PayPal's Venmo coming in third. Oh yeah, uh, PayPal has a peer-to-peer payments app too. Told you it does a lot. Anyway, the plan for Block is to try and build connections between these two ecosystems and make them more powerful, such as Cash App Pay being used with Square's point-of-sale devices or loyalty solutions offered to merchants being delivered directly to Cash App. I forgot to mind about one more stupid thing when it comes to Block, because this was a company we both invested in. So, yeah, we both know the company quite well, but there's some stupid things. And I know you mentioned Jack Dorsey, CEO. Technically, he's not the CEO. He changed his title. Do you remember what he changed it to? Was it Blockhead? It was Blockhead. Still better than Techno King. <clears throat> Elon Musk. I still think it's stupider. Blockhead. The thing is, calling yourself Blockhead is, you know, it can be funny when your share price had gone up a few hundred percent in a couple of years, like Blockhead. However, it feels a lot more stupid when your shares fall by over 70%. And people are like, who's in charge? Oh, the blockhead. And they're like, ah, figures. <laughs> so that gives an overview about what PayPal and Block do. And finally enough, the reason I decided to invest in both of them this month is pretty much the same. While they both had their struggles, I think that they remain two very strong businesses that are working through their issues. I think Block seemed to lose its way back when it spent a whopping $29 billion on acquiring Afterpay in 2022. God, what blockhead decided to do that? <laughs> and PayPal has been having some issues for a couple of years too. But guess what? Their share prices reflect these problems and then some, in my opinion. Shares of PayPal have fallen by 80% since their highs in July 2021. And it's a similar story for Block, whose shares have fallen by over 75% from its highs. It's been horrible for investors, but I think these shares are now looking very attractively priced considering the strength and growth opportunities of both businesses, even if there have been some bumps in the road. Or blocks, can we say? <laughs> it's never great when the jokes just keep coming with a business. Now, when it comes to valuation, we like to use a multiple-based approach. And now I'm just going to give an example of how this might work. There are quite a few numbers in here, so just bear with me. I don't know how well it translates over audio. 
So say a company makes a profit of 20 million pounds and its current market capitalization is 200 million pounds. With market capitalization basically just being the size of a business. You say that a company is currently trading at 10 times earnings because its overall value of 200 million pounds is equal to 10 times its current earnings of 20 million pounds. This is a very common way to try and gauge a company's valuation. Now, we use a combination of analysts' estimates and our own assumptions to forecast four years into the future for what exactly we think these companies can achieve. And then we assign the valuation multiple based on their outlook from that point. Basically, the quicker you think a company is going to grow its earnings or the amount of cash that it generates in the future, the higher a multiple you can assign it. And here's how these two companies look when we do this. And both estimates are up to the end of 2027. So basically, four years into the future. For PayPal, we've assumed that revenue will grow by around 8% per year and the company will have a 24% operating margin, meaning that it turns 24% of its revenue into profit before tax and other miscellaneous costs. The result is an estimated operating profit of $9.8 billion in 2027. Then, based on historical averages and the potential we think PayPal has to grow from then on, we decided to give it an operating profit valuation multiple of 16. So to find its overall potential value by 2027, we do $9.8 billion multiplied by 16, which gives a market capitalization of $157 billion. Then to get from market capitalization back to share price, you divide by the total number of shares that PayPal has. This is known as shares outstanding. And that gives an estimate share price of $146 by the end of 2027. Now, given that PayPal shares are currently set at around $61, if they did grow to $146 in four years, that would be an average annual return for investors of 24% per year, which would be great. But will this happen? Well, we have absolutely no idea because nobody can predict the future with that kind of accuracy. Otherwise, investing would just be too easy and computers would beat everyone, which they kind of do, to be fair. However, what it does is that it gives us an idea of what a company would have to do in order to be a good investment. Like we said, we need to do a full episode on valuation to properly go through this. But the basic idea is that I think PayPal's shares look to be attractively valued right now. The same idea goes for Block, but we won't run through all the numbers again. Oh, why not? Give the people the numbers. They want the numbers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're welcome. <laughs> In short, the investment thesis is this. Both PayPal and Block are two strong companies with plenty of growth still to come as digital payments continue to become more and more prevalent in the world. And I think that the share prices of both companies look pretty attractive right now. However, consider the two big risk factors. First, these are both companies that are, in one way or another, going through an attempted turnaround, especially PayPal. If this turnaround fails for PayPal, then the company's results are likely to suffer, and so will shareholders, making it a riskier investment from this point of view. The new CEO, Alex Chris, has been saying a lot of good things, especially about how PayPal is going to be utilizing the load of data that it has to improve the PayPal experience for both businesses and consumers but it will probably be at least 12 months until we start to see any real change. So that's a big risk. The other big risk is simply that my view on valuation could be wrong. The shares might not be as attractively priced as I've estimated, and so that could result in share prices falling rather than growing, 
and nobody wants that. But given everything, I do think these are two good companies just going through a tough time. And I guess we'll look back in a few years to see if I was right or wrong. I mean, whatever it is, I'll probably pay for it (laughs) or get paid for it. Well, I can tell you that the next purchase that I'm going to talk about is a bit more straightforward than those two businesses. And that is Airbnb, which I decided to invest £100 into this month. Now, as a company, I really love Airbnb. I think it's managed to build an incredibly strong brand, but the biggest reason for its success is its network effect. A network effect is a competitive advantage that some businesses have, and it helps them to grow and attract more customers to their platform. So how does it work? In short, the bigger the network, the more attractive it is to join. And so more people join. And so the network becomes bigger and therefore more attractive. And so more people join and the network becomes bigger. And you just repeat that over and over again. Airbnb works exactly like this. If I want to book an apartment or holiday home for a trip, I head to Airbnb because it basically created this category. So lots of people go there to find a short-term rental anywhere in the world. So if I actually have a short-term rental property, then I want to put it on Airbnb because that has a huge number of potential guests. As a result, there's more options for short-term rentals on Airbnb. So more people use the platform because there's more to choose from. And so more guests means more people want to list their short-term rentals on there. And it's just a virtuous cycle that's helped Airbnb to grow so quick. If you want a bit of homework on network effects, I'll tell you that Facebook, it has probably one of the most obvious network effects out there. So if you can figure that out, I think you've got this nailed. I also really like Airbnb's co-founder and CEO, Brian Chesky. He seems like a genuinely good guy who wants to bring good things to the world and who is extremely passionate about what his business is doing. He co-founded Airbnb with his friends, Brian and Joe, and the three of them combined own over 30% of all shares in the business. I spoke about the importance of founder-led businesses and skin in the game earlier, and that's exactly what Airbnb has too. If these founders can grow the business and the share price, it will substantially boost their own wealth. So their goals should be aligned with those of shareholders. Now, I find myself topping up on my investment in Airbnb pretty regularly, because I find that shares are normally reasonably priced, and yet I think the sky is truly the limit for this company. The holiday rentals market is huge, as is the market for experiences which the company has also been getting into, but I think the next focus for Airbnb will be on long-term stays of 28 days or longer. These types of long-term stays have been one of the fastest growing areas for Airbnb, and it's understandable. The rise in remote working and so-called digital nomads mean that so many more people are now able to work from anywhere in the world, and that has been a huge boost for Airbnb. I mean, hey, we're even going to be doing that next month. But looking even further forward, it's quite easy to see how Airbnb could also work its way into the real estate and rental market, which again, could be a massive growth driver. There is one obvious risk to Airbnb as an investment, And no, it's not random accounts on Twitter or TikTok sharing their bad Airbnb experiences for likes, although that is a minor concern for me. The big risk that everyone talks about is regulation. Local governments and residents understandably take some issue with Airbnbs in their area. Sure, they can bring in more visitors and help to spur on the local economy, but they can also drive up property prices. That's why some cities, such as New York, have bought in rules that banned rentals of Airbnbs for less than 30 days 
to try and ease the soaring cost of properties. A recent report by AirDNA, a company that tracks the performance of vacation rentals for Airbnb, said that demand for Airbnbs in New York fell by a staggering 46% in December due to these rules. But on the flip side, demand in nearby Jersey City and Newark grew by an impressive 54%. Let's go, Jersey City. Now, there's no telling how these regulations are going to go and what the long-term impact is, but Airbnb has had a threat of regulation hanging over it for a very long time, and yet the company has successfully grown despite this. The success that the company has been seeing with longer stays might help to offset this fear, since that would be permissible in a place like New York. In my view, regulation with Airbnb is something to always be aware of as an investor, but it's not something that scares me yet. So simply put, I think Airbnb is a great business with great leadership and a great product, and I think it has a great future ahead. Plus, I think shares look reasonably priced right now, so I was happy to just go ahead and top up my existing investment in Airbnb. Let's move on now to some of the things we saw during January, since it was a pretty busy month for both buying and selling. It's worth pointing out that we very rarely sell all of our shares in our companies because, as you know, we are long-term investors and plan on investing in these companies for years, if not decades. The main two reasons why we might trim our existing holdings is if the shares get too expensive or if we're having doubts about the company and want it to be a smaller position in our portfolio. With that said, in January, I sold 10% of my investment in Shopify, which is a brilliant business with a share price that looks just a bit too expensive for my liking. I then sold my entire £223 investment in Mobico Group, which used to be National Express. This is an investment that I made years ago that did not pan out, and I stopped keeping up with it a while ago. So I finally sold this so that I could reinvest that money elsewhere. And the third and final one, I trimmed yet another 10% of my investment in Tesla following their results. And I'll talk about that one in a bit more detail soon. Soon. (laughs) That sounded kind of ominous. Later on this podcast, I mean. You mean about two minutes? Soon. I will reveal all. Soon. Dun dun dun. God, I wish we could pay for sound effects. Well, whilst we build the anticipation for that, Let's take a look at my sales, and there was one similarity between us, and that was Shopify, where I also sold 10% of my existing investment. As mentioned, we have our own simple valuation models and whatnot for our investments, and there's a set rule that we have to try and stop us from making the same mistake that we did in 2021, which was paying too much for companies and holding on to shares when they got crazy expensive. Now, when share prices hit a certain point, we have to sell some shares. Can be a small amount, can be a big amount, depending on our views of the company. That's what happened when Shopify hit that threshold this month. But we both really like the business, so we only trimmed 10% of our investment. We still expect to be Shopify shareholders for years and years to come. I also trimmed a couple of other smaller holdings this month in order to top up on UiPath. And I sold basically £150 of both of these two investments, which were Etsy and Lululemon. It was basically me balancing up selling shares in a rubbish investment, Etsy, with selling some shares in a great investment, Lululemon. Neither of these are a main holding of mine, and I keep them in my little other investments pie on Trading212, but I was happy to trim both. I was happy to sell some of my Etsy investment because, 
quite honestly, the company hasn't been doing that well, and it hasn't been doing that well now for a couple of years. On the other hand, Lululemon has been doing very well, but the problem is that I think its only competitive advantage is its brand. And whilst that can be extremely powerful, it also concerns me that there's nothing more tangible that I can see or call a competitive advantage. So I think it's a brilliant company, but I didn't mind trimming some of my investment in it to help boost my investment in UiPath. Now let's now move on to the stock that always gets people to pay attention, Tesla. The company reported its Q4 of 2023 results last week, and it's fair to say that the market wasn't too impressed, sending Tesla shares down more than 10% following the announcement. I think there's a number of reasons for this, and quite a lot to unpack because it's Tesla, and there always seems to be a lot to unpack. But for me, I think the biggest thing that had the stock market spooked was the pessimism for 2024. In their results presentation, Tesla said that in 2024, our vehicle volume growth rate may be notably lower than the growth rate achieved in 2023, as our team work on the launch of the next generation vehicle at the Gigafactory, Texas. Putting aside the talk of a next generation vehicle for one second, it's worth pointing out that Tesla's vehicle deliveries grew by 19.5% in 2023. That's great growth for a normal business, but Pretty slow growth for a company such as Tesla, which needs to grow rapidly to justify its share price. And now they're saying that 2024 is going to be even less? I think this has shown one issue for Tesla that seems to get overlooked by shareholders. It currently makes its money as a car company, meaning that it is a cyclical business. Now, a cyclical business is a company that tends to do well when the economy does well, and it does not so well when the economy is doing not so well and they can be very sensitive to things like interest rates. Car companies are very often cyclical, and Tesla is no difference. Interest rates around the world are high, which means that it becomes much more expensive to buy a new vehicle on finance because loans are more expensive. So Tesla has cut prices in an attempt to boost demand, which is part of the reason why automotive margins have been in free fall for a while. Although that actually stopped this horror in something of a bright spot for the company, as the gross margins for cars, excluding regulatory credits, improved quarter on quarter for the first time in a long time. So maybe margins will start to improve. Anyway, the point is that things are not looking too rosy in the short term for Tesla. As you might know if you listened to the last season of our podcast, I have been trimming my Tesla investment for a while mainly because I had issues with Musk potentially damaging the brand, and it had also become too large an investment in my portfolio considering how risky I feel that it is. But it's worth pointing out that despite all of this, I think the future remains bright for Tesla. There's plenty to be concerned about right now, and to be honest, the shares deserve the whack that they got. But the potential remains enormous, especially as its latest version of its self-driving software, V12, appears to have been a huge leap forward. Also, the next-generation car mentioned previously is possibly going to be one that is more affordable, something below £30,000. But that's purely speculation that we've seen. If that's the case, it might continue to hurt demand, as people who want to buy a Tesla but can't stomach paying forty grand for a car such as me, are less likely to buy an expensive model in 2024 if there's a chance that a cheaper model might be announced in 2025 or 2026. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> So I trim my Tesla position a little bit more because I do think there's more short-term risk. But I am much happier now that Tesla is a smaller part of my portfolio and I remain optimistic about the long-term potential of the company. 
Before we wrap up this episode, we're really excited to share that signups for our ASED investing course have reopened for a limited time. If you're ready to become a confident investor and take control of your financial future over the course of six weeks, starting on the 5th of February, this is for you. Signups will be closing in a few days, so check out the link to our website in the description of this episode to find out more, and we hope that we'll see you there. Well, it's been a busy month of buying and selling, and we're hoping that February will be a little bit less busy. But who knows, we don't control share prices, sadly, and there will be plenty of companies in our portfolios that report results, which is always exciting. Thanks again to our sponsor, Trading212, and remember to check out the referral link in the description to get your free fractional share worth up to £100. Keep in mind the terms and conditions apply to the offer. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait for you to join us again next week. Until next time, bye-bye.